This is Monday Morning QB, August 3rd, 2020. I'm Askia Mohammed. Today on the show, will there be quick relief for workers in the next coronavirus bill? And what about help preventing evictions? Teachers are making themselves heard. And four former presidents of the D.C. Bar Association say that Attorney General William Barr should have his license to practice law revoked. All that and more, stay with us. Negotiations resume on another coronavirus relief bill today, but significant differences remain between Democrats and Republicans and even within the GOP. A moratorium on evictions expired late last month, while an extra $600 in unemployment benefits lapsed just last week. Democrats want to extend the benefit, while Republicans are feuding with themselves over how to cut it. But as political leaders battle it out in Washington, ordinary Americans, especially black, brown, and indigenous workers, need quick relief. Chris Banker Drowns reports. The United States economy is in a recession unlike any other. Millions of workers have applied for unemployment benefits over each of the last 20 weeks. Consumer spending, government spending, and business investment have all declined precipitously. Trillions of dollars in stimulus have been pumped into the economy, but can only help so much until the public health crisis is mitigated. Federal aid programs, like the extra $600 in unemployment benefits, have come and gone, leaving millions of workers stranded. Michelle Evermore is Senior Policy Analyst at the National Employment Law Project, and she explains the racially disproportionate impact of a lapse in those extra unemployment benefits. Yes. So 46% of the people receiving a benefit in um, July were people of color, according to the Congressional Budget Office. Um, This is a particularly important benefit in the Black community and the Latinx community and the Indigenous community, partly because they're the people who got hit largest by COVID, but also because unemployment insurance is generally stingiest in areas that happen to also have a high population of black workers or Latinx workers or indigenous workers. So the $600 is sort of evening out that massive divide for right now. And since this expired this week, next week we will see the massively discriminatory, uh, you know, base benefit takeover. And that's really unfortunate. And how is it that the normal state unemployment insurance is so uh, disproportionate already? There are two ways. One is in terms of access and one is in in terms of how much of income that a benefit replaces. And so, um, again, in states, particularly with the highest black population, you see extremely low recipiency. That means uh, an extremely low percentage of workers who are unemployed able to get a benefit. In North Carolina, uh, it was only 9% last year. 9% of unemployed people were able to get a benefit. Uh, 11% in a state like Florida. Um, These are largely states in the South. Um, And so, you know, people can't access a benefit. And then when they can, they're smaller benefits and they replace less of income. Now, the GOP relief plan that was recently introduced calls for a reduction in the extra benefits down to $200. And then it seems to be eventually replaced by uh, benefits calculated as a percentage of prior earnings. In your view, is there any merit to the idea of constructing a benefit or an extra benefit 
based on prior wages, or is the flat rate that we've been going with a better approach? The flat rate is definitely a better approach. Um, so the Economic Policy Institute, uh, Josh Bivens over there looked at cutting from 600 to 200. And the thing about unemployment insurance is it's money spent in the community that supports not just the person getting it, but all their neighbors as well, really. And so going from 600 to 200 would reduce the GDP by 2.5% and the number of jobs supported uh, by th nearly 3.4 million. Um, and so, so that's, that's a spiraling effect that we need to sort of take into account. And then I do not believe that a percentage of income replacement makes much sense. So right now, the way that benefits are calculated is different in every state and different, uh, so it results in a different replacement rate for every person. And so state systems would have to go and figure out, first of all, how much in income did I really have last year? What was my whole income? What percentage of it does UI replace now? And then how much do we have to pay in this extra benefit in order to uh, pay out uh, a percentage replacement rate? And so, you know, this, this proposal of replacing 70% income, first of all, would take months for states to stand up. And it's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous to me that they've proposed to, to put up a program that will take states four months to implement, four to five months to implement, that expires December 31. I think that it's not a very serious proposal when you think about it. Now, conservatives have called this extra unemployment benefit a disincentive for workers to return to work. Uh, but cutting the benefit on this basis seems wrongheaded, if only because there are more unemployed workers than there are job openings for unemployed workers. Even if there were enough jobs to go around, is there any research that you're aware of that might indicate workers are more inclined to favor unemployment benefits over the stability of employment? No, actually, uh, unemployed workers who are receiving an unemployment insurance benefit are actually more likely to apply for and accept work. It's a particularly interesting question to be talking about this week as the $600 has lapsed and people see that this benefit is being used as a political football. Um, people want stability during this pandemic. Not only that, but when you talk about um, you know, people who might be making a little bit more on unemployment uh, versus going to work, um, but those, those analyses aren't taking into account uh, fringe benefits. I think that people who rely on employer-sponsored health coverage might want to keep that during a pandemic. One of the important benefits that Congress enacted is this federal pandemic unemployment assistance, which fills in some of the gaps in normal state unemployment insurance. But once federal PUA and other federal programs that are tailored for this pandemic run their course, how can we plug the holes that, that will still exist in state unemployment insurance? That's such an important point. So, you know, as I was talking about earlier, there, there are two ways that um, states are unequal in terms of how benefits go out. One is how much they pay and the other is who has access. This pandemic unemployment assistance um, fills the hole that, uh, that, that is created by restricting access to benefits. And so we see in some states that have, you know, restricted access by make, increasing the amount of money that people have to earn to get a benefit, for example. Um, those people can now get pandemic unemployment assistance, and about half the people getting a benefit right now are getting it through pandemic unemployment assistance. And so when this runs out, um, half the people who uh, are, are currently getting a benefit would not be eligible in the future. So uh, we have to definitely completely rethink who qualifies for unemployment insurance. And particularly, I think, starting with uh, 
the gig economy and making sure that workers who really are doing work for, for what looks like an employer to me um, actually are covered under unemployment insurance. You've advocated for an expansion of state work sharing programs to reduce layoffs. Can you, for our listeners, describe what work sharing is and whether it makes sense to continue work sharing programs after the pandemic and related lockdowns have subsided? Yes, absolutely. Every state should have in place a work sharing program. What this does is it allows employers to decide to not lay people off, but instead reduce the number of hours that they work and still have unemployment insurance fill that gap. So for example, if I want to reduce my, if I need to reduce my workforce by 20%, I can give workers Friday off and they can collect unemployment insurance that day. And so then they collect right now, uh, 80% of their pay, 20% of their unemployment insurance benefit. And on top of that, the $600 pandemic un unemployment compensation. And so, um, you know, uh, this is a great tool. Right now, employers are complaining that they can't bring people back, but when they find out about work sharing, they realize, well, we only wanted to bring people back about half time anyway. So we can use this. Um, we can keep them attached to the workforce. They get their benefits and they get a, an unemployment insurance benefit and the $600. It's just a win-win-win for everybody. In recent testimony to Congress, you say out loud what I think a lot of us have been thinking, that this recession isn't like the normal ones that we've seen over the last few decades, largely because it's self-induced in order to save lives and that it will persist longer than normal, uh, persist as long as this pandemic persists. Do you see ways that this recession could prompt a fundamental reorganization of the economy? I could see, for example, an elimination of employment-based health coverage and a movement to universal coverage. I think that that's one of the hopeful um, effects of this. I think also, you know, generally unemployment insurance is something people ignore unless there's a recession. The things that I'm hearing people talk about with unemployment insurance are really giving me hope that this can be a program that truly does help people who are transitioning in their careers to, to actually have the time and space to, uh, you know, figure out the next step more more carefully and more comfortably with supports for job training and things like that. Um, I also think that maybe hopefully getting a living wage for a little bit will uh, help workers come together and realize, you know, maybe we could just get this all the time from our employers. Um, I am seeing so much spontaneous organizing around unemployment insurance. And as we've seen historically, um, expansions in, in worker organizing and workers coming together to build power doesn't happen in little by little. It usually happens all at once. There's usually a big calamity that causes workers to realize, hey, we're getting a bad deal here. We've been getting a bad deal for too long and we're going to demand more. And I am seeing the beginnings of something like that happening here and now. And I, I have so much hope for the future. Michelle Evermore is Senior Policy Analyst at the National Employment Law Project. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. As Congress remains bogged down in negotiating a new coronavirus relief bill, one thing is certain, a new month's rent is now due. Without immediate action, millions of people in America are at risk of losing their places to live. Sue Goodwin has this report. The Federal CARES Act, enacted in late March, included a limited ban on evictions. 
It only protected renters in federally subsidized housing or in property backed by government loans, and it only lasted 120 days. Now that it has expired, the nation is on the cusp of what could be the most severe housing crisis in our history. Jaboa Lake is a senior policy analyst for the Poverty to Prosperity Program at American Progress. She and her colleagues recently released a report titled Kicking Folks Out While They're Down, How the Premature Lifting of Coronavirus Restrictions is Increasing Evictions and Worsening the Homelessness Crisis. Jaboa Lake spoke with us to describe how that crisis is currently playing out. So, you know, some states have had moratoriums on evictions in place, though dozens of states have let theirs expire. Some cities have set up rental assistance funds, but these funds are really rare and the need far exceeds the availability. So there's really not that much that are available to people to protect people at risk of eviction. One thing that the CARES Act did do that extends past the moratorium on eviction that just expired um, is that they made it so that landlords had to give a 30-day filing notice to tenants before filing for eviction. So previously, a tenant may only have, you know, 72 hours between getting the notice of filing of eviction and being kicked out on the street. Um, so there is that 30-day filing notice. But when we think about the need that is present, it's really not that much that's available. Across the nation, eviction filings are already beginning to mount. To make matters worse, as courtrooms begin to reopen, many are working their way through a backlog of pre-existing evictions that were previously put on pause. It's hard to pinpoint exactly how many Americans could be affected by this looming crisis, but Jaboa Lake says there are some indications. What we are seeing, you know, is that 22 million households, so that's one in five, report not being able to pay next month's rent. So the estimates from those numbers and other numbers are saying really anywhere between 28 to 40 million people may be facing homelessness as a result of the the mishandlings of the pandemic. You know, and we already see households doubling up to avoid both eviction and homelessness. And the problem's not going to get better any soon. So these numbers will only continue to increase without action. As we await real numbers on how many people will face eviction in the coming months, one thing is certain. Certain groups of people will be far more impacted than others. And these are the same people already disproportionately suffering the health impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's a horrible thing to see because it's the same groups that are most impacted already by housing discrimination and the same groups that experience highest rates of homelessness. So these are communities of color, disabled people, undocumented people, formerly incarcerated people, poor people. These are all the same groups that are being the most impacted and hit hardest by the pandemic. So when we see the lack of action that's creating the harms that we're seeing right now, these harms are not equally distributed. So the responses to the pandemic are only worsening the disparities that are being faced by vulnerable communities. What that means is that while these communities are already seeing higher rates of COVID-19 infections and deaths, faced with the loss of shelter, those rates are likely to increase. So like I mentioned, families are doubling up, but this is just a temporary solution that poses more risk for spread. You know, people that experience homelessness are already more at risk for contracting illness. 
And realistically, without shelter or access to shelter, it's nearly impossible to adhere to health guidelines such as social distancing, such as frequent hand washing and washing of clothing. You know, how do you do these things if you don't have a home to stay in? So, you know, these groups that are then facing these larger disparities are more at risk of a, a whole host of things. As pressure mounts to avoid what is often called a potential tsunami of evictions, Trump and top White House officials suggested they would be open to a short-term deal that would extend the federal eviction moratorium. Democrats, however, are cool to what they call a piecemeal approach that leaves too many pressing issues unaddressed. Jaboa Lake describes what she would like to see the federal government do to more fully address housing during this pandemic. At the federal level, there's a whole bunch of things that really need to be done, but the the biggest asks that are being had right now are for at least $100 billion for rental assistance. Again, this will prevent evictions and the expected housing and homelessness disasters. Being able to provide rental assistance will keep people housed, will provide for renter and landlord relief, and will nip the problem in the bud. You know, we need um, eviction moratoriums so that people can stay housed. But just eviction moratoriums do not make up for the rent that is owed and the back rent that's owed. So if a family hasn't been able to pay their rent for the last, you know, five months because of job loss and income loss, how do you expect somebody to pay back thousands of dollars when the when the job market is not looking good right now? We also need an additional at least $100.5 billion in homelessness assistance. You know, early on in the pandemic, there was an estimated of $15 billion that would be needed to make sure that people experiencing homelessness would stay safe and healthy during the pandemic. And in the CARES Act, there was only $4.5 billion for this cost. So that need was not met. And this need is going to become even more, you know, increasing if we see a wave of homelessness. But really, there needs to be a full circle approach to this problem where we're increasing access and funding for things like health care, unemployment, and food assistance, such as SNAP. You know, housing is health care, but if we're not taking care of the full person or the full family, how do we expect to avoid, you know, these really, really uh, dire consequences? In the absence of federal action, it falls on states to put in place protections that will keep people in their homes. Jaboa Lake says many states are rising to the challenge but there's also more they can do. A lot of the action that is needed has been seen from states. So states can continue to further develop rental assistance programs. States can continue to enact and reinstate their moratoriums on evictions and foreclosures. States can guarantee rights to counsel for those who do have to face an eviction. But again, there's other continued things. States can prevent utility shutoffs from non-payment of utility payments. They can pause and stop the enforcement of anti-homelessness law enforcement, such as clearing of outdoor encampments to prevent, you know, the large cycle of homelessness to prison pipeline and to stop the ultimate criminalization of poverty. It's hard to imagine exactly what's in store in coming weeks. Are we likely to see Congress solve this problem? Are states going to be able to meet the demand for assistance if they don't? Or are we likely to see people flocking to shelters? or even pitching tents where they can find a plot of available land. Jaboa Lake says these are tough questions to answer. And part of the problem is that we don't know what's going to be happening if we don't see certain actions being taken. There's a number of um, legislation that is being debated right now, both at the House side and in the Senate, um, around housing protections. Nothing is really being passed or seen being passed that seems to be tangible at this moment for household protection. So it's really frustrating. So when we think about next week, you know, when rent is due, 
what we're going to probably be seeing is just a whole country experiencing a, a renter um, a hardship where people are going to be getting those notifications of filing for eviction. And then they're going to be put in a place where they're going, only going to have, you know, a month without unemployment insurance, without jobs, to figure out how to pay their rent, how to pay their background, how to feed their families, how to pay all of their bills. So what we're seeing next month is going to be a complete frenzy of people that need assistance. And then a federal government that's not providing states with the funds that the states need to provide that assistance to people. Jaboa Lake is a senior policy analyst for the Poverty to Prosperity Program at American Progress. You can find the report she prepared with her colleagues at AmericanProgress.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Americans' teachers have made themselves heard over the last few years on issues like class size, pay, and even affordable housing. Teachers' voices have been louder yet in their latest struggle around safe school reopening this academic year. Chris Banger-Drowns has that story. Nothing is off the table for the American Federation of Teachers when it comes to ensuring safe school reopening. The union passed a resolution last week calling for strict guidelines to determine when schools are safe to reopen, including positive test rates below 5%, transmission rates below 1%, effective contact tracing, social distancing, necessary building improvements, and special accommodations for at-risk staff. The resolution boldly promises support for local or state affiliate unions that might choose to go on strike over school safety. Randy Weingarten is president of the AFT, and she explains how the last few years of teacher unrest has built towards this fight. Well, I, I think that the, you know, both the engagement that we did in light of the Janice case and the engagement that teachers have done across the country to fund our future, as well as um, Red for Ed, um, showed um, our members and showed teachers around the country that together you can accomplish what is impossible to do alone. And I think that that's been inspiring for people that even with a Betsy DeVos um, in, the, in um, the Trump administration, that if we work together with parents and with communities, um, we can actually make real change. Activism is really important. It's not just elections that are important. And those things together um, change people's lives. Relatedly, it seems that community support for teacher actions has been a real hallmark of success from the Chicago Teachers Union strike back in 2012 to the wave of strikes just a couple of years ago. How have teachers and how has the AFT uh, been galvanizing community support for safe school reopening? Oh, we've been, so look, at, you have to explain to people what you're trying to do, why you're trying to do it, and how you're trying to do it. This is not about sloganeering. When you're talking about students' lives and their futures, people have to see your heart, and they have to see your soul, and they have to believe that this is what you really believe. And so, you know, I've, you know, I've, I've been a teacher and a lawyer representing teachers for most of my adult career. And, you know, if you, if, if people don't believe you, if they don't have trust in you, it doesn't matter what you're saying. It's what they hear and whether they trust you. And so what we've done is that first we started really looking ourselves 
back in March and April about what was needed to reopen because we were damned if we were going to have reopening as chaotic as closing was with no information, with the president downplaying this virus, with him being reckless. And so the AFT put out the first report, the first report that predates the CDC and others about school reopening. We put out a report at the end of April about how, not whether, but how to reopen schools safely. And we've been working with members and with locals and with communities ever since. So for example, the NAACP is a plaintiff in the case that we have filed um, in Florida against Ron DeSantis because of his reckless disregard of people's health and safety in um, ordering the reopening of schools in the middle of a surge and now in the middle of a hurricane. And when I say reopening, what, you know, why, why are people, for example, thinking about reopening in a hybrid manner as opposed to fully? It's because we don't have the number of teachers and we don't have the space. Even after they changed the CDC guidelines, the need for six feet of physical spacing, the need for masks and cleaning and ventilation, it essentially means that schools are going to be at half or a quarter capacity at any one time. That means if you were trying to open things fully, it would mean you would have to find um, another, you'd have to double the space. You'd have to find and hire another 50% more teachers. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure that people know what we're advocating for and why. And that's how you create parent-teacher solidarity when people see it and they are involved in it and they have, and they're engaged in it. Parents have brought to the table and rightly so, we need to open school kitchens more. We need to have um, more extensive feeding programs. We need to do more in terms of digital. If radio is for free, why isn't digitization for free? Why can't we get connectivity for free? Why is it being charged in every single home in terms of connectivity? instead of it just being part of your electricity bill. And so these are the things that, um, that, that, we're, that we have to do together. AFT's newest resolution has a really comprehensive set of guidelines for reopening schools safely. And you mentioned that some schools may not even be in a place to meet some of those guidelines. Do you have a sense of how many districts across the country have committed to these guidelines that you've put forward in the resolution? and how many are, are capable of even doing so? Well, capable of even doing so and willingness to do so are probably two separate questions. I would say that we'll, you're, the reason you're seeing more and more places going on to remote, at least to start, is because they're not capable, they don't have the wherewithal, they don't have the resources, they haven't had the plans um, in place, and frankly, some of it is not um, under their control. If, if you're in a district, like if you're in Miami Beach, you're not in control of the virus in that, in that state. Um, you, you, you have to rely on the testing infrastructure, which is non-existent in that state. So, you know, some of it, um, let, me, let me just back up a second and say, this is unprecedented for everyone. And given how terribly the Trump administration has done any of this planning. Because it's been so terrible, 
it's now putting more pressure on schools and on districts and on parents and teachers to get it right on a local level when it's been completely messed up on a national level. And so, you know, we don't have the, re you know, so, so, so the, the responsibility has been abdicated to us. We don't have the resources. And, and it's not just that the science changes, but it's that the situation changes. If, if, if you had more and more and more New Yorks right now, all throughout the country, where you had community spread today of like 1.2%, as opposed to the Floridas, the Texases, the Californias, the Arizonas, where you've had community spread in 20 and 30%, you'd be in a very different situation in terms of reopening schools across the country. This most recent resolution uh, adopted by AFT says that no tactic is off the table and explicitly mentions support for local or state safety strikes on a case-by-case -case basis as a last resort. If, if we do get to the place of having strikes, what kinds of financial or political support could the National Federation provide to local affiliate unions that might decide to strike? Um, we will, we have in the last decade or so, in every strike that there's been, We've been there walking the walk with our members and we would do the same thing, whether it's um, personnel, whether it's financial, um, whether it's um, uh, all sorts of other types of things that, you know, I, that I'm not anticipating at this moment. Um, our locals know that when we took this, it was serious and our word is our bond. For sure. And, and lastly, I understand if you can't answer this on the record, but are there concerns of legal repercussions for AFT if teachers strike in states where striking is illegal? Look, this is a moral issue, and I'm so glad. I mean, we've been talking for a long time in the last few days, or I should, let me say it this way. We've been talking in the last few days about um, John Lewis and about there are times when you have a moral obligation, we see it as our moral obligation to keep students and educators safe. Um, and, and ultimately, the resolution passed universally with people in states that have issues in terms of strike prohibitions and states that don't. Um, safety strikes are very different than economic strikes. We can't have a situation where people's lives are being jeopardized or their health and safety is being jeopardized by reckless political maneuvers by a president or a governor. And that's why we took this action. We know it's serious. We know it's consequential. And we wouldn't have taken it if we thought that we could handle it in other ways. Do you have any closing thoughts? Just that the... Um, there has, you know, we're in the middle of, of three crises, an economic crisis, a health crisis, and a reckoning with racism. There's been no administration, Republican or Democrat, who have been, had such a reckless disregard for working families, for their children, like the Trump administration. The reckless deprivation um, and pretending to be so concerned about kids when they have never been concerned about kids for the three and a half years 
that they've been in office is really unconscionable. They need to actually be focused on the health and safety of our kids and harmonize and integrate that with their education needs and aspirations. And ultimately, that's what we're demanding. That's what we need. They should be negotiating a, a relief package right now with the Congress, and they should be working with us, not fighting us on the safety guardrails in order to get kids back to in-school learning. That would actually be a help in this pandemic, not the increase of agita and concern that they have um, done. Uh, they should be ashamed of themselves for not just denying the virus, but to put parents and teachers and kids in this kind of situation of, 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 of wrenching decisions about whether or not to reopen schools um, in the absence of having these safety guardrails. This is really unconscionable on Trump's part, on Pence's part, and on DeVos's part. Randy Weingarten is president of the American Federation of Teachers. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. In his House Judiciary Committee testimony Tuesday, Attorney General William Barr had little to say. But Democrats, Chairman Gerald Nadler, and Washington Representative Pramila J. Paul raked him over the coals. William Barr's views of presidential power are so radically mistaken that he is simply the wrong man at the wrong time to be Attorney General of the United States. On two separate occasions, after President Trump tweeted, liberate Michigan to subvert stay-home orders to protect the public health of people in Michigan. Protesters swarmed the Michigan Capitol carrying guns, some with swastikas, Confederate flags, and one even with a dark-haired doll with a noose around its neck. Are you aware that these protesters called for the governor to be lynched, shot, and beheaded? No. There is a real discrepancy in how you react as the attorney general, the top cop in this country, when white men with swastikas storm a government building with guns, there is no need for the president to, quote, activate you because they're getting the president's personal agenda done. But when black people and people of color protest police brutality, systemic racism, and the president's very own lack of response to those critical issues, then you forcibly remove them with armed federal officers, pepper bombs, because they are considered terrorists by the president. If his appearance before the Judiciary Committee was not damaging enough, a group of lawyers, law professors, and four former presidents of the D.C. Bar have written a letter calling for the association to investigate and revoke Barr's license to practice law, complaining he's the attorney general for the people of the United States and not another Trump family lawyer, and that he's unfit for office. Roy Austin is a former Justice Department attorney and White House official in the Obama administration and one of those who signed the letter. Look, uh, Attorney General Barr, in uh, our eyes, has repeatedly violated his oath of office and has repeatedly uh, shown uh, that he is not 
following the ethics rules that every attorney in, in Washington, D.C. must follow. Uh, for that reason, we believe that the D.C. bar should conduct an investigation of him and make a determination as to whether or not what we are seeing is in fact correct and whether or not he should be, um, he should have his license removed. No attorney can, can lie, um, intentionally. I would say that he's being more than careless. He's being, um, quite intentional in his public statements, in his, uh, testimony before Congress, in his, in, his uh, decisions to uh, interfere with other investigations. Uh, and these are uh, the types of acts that had a, had any other attorney um, committed similar conduct. It is no question that the bar would open an investigation to them. And should they find those things to be true, that they would be disbarred. I think the question here is, what do you do with a with an attorney general? Does that change um, the bar's calculus at all? We say no. It shouldn't change the calculus. He is an attorney here in Washington D.C. and he has to follow the same rules every other attorney must follow. In his congressional testimony, uh, he was combative and, I guess you could say, defensive of the president and. I guess the appearance uh, remains that his principal client, rather than the United States of America, is uh, J uh, Donald J. Trump. Absolutely. Uh, and look, we the, the people who signed onto this complaint are attorneys. Uh, many of us have done defense work, and we understand, you know, defending one's client vigorously. But Attorney General Barr's client is the people of the United States. His client is not the president of the United States and his conduct and his statements are, he is acting as though he is the president's personal attorney. And that's wrong. Now the president does have a personal attorney though, right? Correct. He has white house counsel. He has his own attorney. So he doesn't need, and that's not the position that William Barr is in. And, and William Barr knows that fact. Uh, that came out during his testimony. He knows that he is the attorney for the people and not the attorney for uh, uh, for President Trump. And he feigned uh, that he, in fact, has been acting as the attorney for the people. Uh, but it is, it's obvious, certainly to those of us who signed that Barr complaint and many others, that he is acting as Donald Trump's personal attorney, and he is not defending the rights, the privileges um, of the people of the United States. The position of attorney general um, in recent times has certainly been made clear, sorry, the duty of the attorney general has certainly been made clear in recent times that the attorney general is to act independently of uh, of the the wants and, and desires uh, of uh, of the president and is supposed to always be supporting the Constitution and defending the Constitution and supporting and defending the people of the United States 
the rule of law for the attorney general is absolutely clear right now. One of the items that the letter to the Bar Association complains about is the handling of protesters in Lafayette Square, among others, the Mueller report. How did the Attorney General Barr err in terms of certainly the Lafayette Square protesters? So with respect to the Lafayette Square protesters, I mean, you can't have an attorney general who is violating people's First Amendment rights to assemble and to speak. And by ordering federal law enforcement to disperse people who were exercising their First Amendment rights, he is violating the First Amendment rights of the people of the United States. And so uh, there, it is a pretty straightforward violation of the law uh, by the attorney general, who is supposed to be the nation's uh, top lawyer. Uh, so a clear violation of, uh, of the Constitution uh, and certainly a, a bar violation. Any other thoughts about his appearance this week on Capitol Hill? He attempted to defend his actions, but I think it was uh, Representative Jay Paul, uh, among others, who pointed out that he uh, he will take certain actions against certain people, uh, and he will ignore the actions of other people. So the fact that he uh, is so quick and willing to use force uh, against uh, people who are protesting uh, President Trump, but so unwilling to use force against a group of individuals who uh, take guns into the state house in Michigan, tells you that his decisions are political and that his decisions are not for the people. He is supposed to be treating all people the same. And he is clearly showing a, a, a very clear political bias in the decisions that he is making. Roy Austin, thank you for talking with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. All too often, the response to declarations that black lives matter is that all lives matter. And that is deeply problematic. For it misses the point of the Black Lives Matter movement, which is to boldly acknowledge that in a nation still deeply entrenched in systematic racism, white lives matter more. And that's what needs to change. A new book argues that to make that change, we need to better understand how all of us can get to a point where we no longer value another life less than our own. Sue Goodwin has this report. The name of the book is On Inhumanity, Dehumanization and How to Resist It. The author is David Livingstone Smith. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of New England in Maine and a longtime scholar on the nature of human cruelty and dehumanization. One of the first things he does in his newest book is to advocate for a precise definition of dehumanization. 
I mean something very specific when I talk about dehumanization. Dehumanization is the belief that some others are less than human creatures. So it's something that happens in our head. It's a way of thinking about other people. Understanding this as a way of thinking is essential to David Livingstone Smith's work here because it is the thinking that paves the way for dehumanizing actions. Actions are the symptoms and thinking is the disease. As he writes in the book, you can't cure a disease by merely attending to its symptoms. You've got to address the deeper, less obvious processes that drive it. And that begins with a better understanding of where this thinking comes from. And that begins with understanding that human beings are predisposed not to harm one another. We human beings are a super social species. No other mammal is as social as we are. We live in these large cooperative groups. We couldn't survive on our own. Now, any social animal has to have powerful inhibitions against doing extreme violence to other members of its community for obvious reasons, because a social way of life cannot be sustained if individuals are at each other's throats, so that any aggressive tendencies have to be sort of damped down. That should be a good thing, but it also raises a problem. The problem is that we are able to recognize that it would be beneficial, advantageous for us, that is our group, to harm others or to exterminate them, to steal their resources, to enslave them, to create room for us to expand into, and so on. And so over time, human beings have developed various cultural methods of disinhibiting aggression, which allows us then to perform these acts of violence. Now, dehumanization is one. It's not the only one. It's one very important method amongst others that enables us psychologically to perform actions that would be very difficult for most of us to perform otherwise. In other words, dehumanization is a motivated state of mind. It's a means to an end. A theme that is central to this book is that of race. David Livingstone Smith sees the very idea of racial categories also as a motivated state of mind, one born of conflict and the desire to dominate, and one that is inseparable from massive acts of dehumanization. Racializing a group is not just recognizing difference. Races are manufactured, they're invented out of conflict. So when one group of people wishes to oppress or to harm or to exterminate another group of people, one of the moves that's made is to racialize them because that gives permission. Now, one of the things that happens when people are racialized is that this act of racialization has got to be seen as justified. And in the most toxic forms of racialization leading to dehumanization, the racialized group is seen not only as inferior, but dangerous. Once you get that trope, they are dangerous, so they need to be subdued, they need to be subjugated. You're really on the pathway to dehumanization. And it's a sort of a prison sentence, really, because race is supposed to be unmodifiable, something you're born into and something you cannot change. So 
I describe dehumanization in the book as racism on steroids. The consequences, as we know, are catastrophic. The Holocaust, the Rwandan genocide, and the long history of slavery and Jim Crow era lynchings in America. But David Livingstone Smith is adamant we not look at dehumanization as something in the past. It is ever-present today, in the way that black men are treated as predatory animals, in the way our president describes undocumented immigrants as rapists, murderers, and animals. So now to the central purpose of this book, how to resist. First, we need to understand ourselves. It's tempting for people to think, oh, I would never dehumanize others like white people did in the South in the late 19th century and early 20th century, or like the Germans did with Jews and Romans. But the fact is, we're all vulnerable. There, there's no vaccine. You know, there's no way we can be inoculated against being swayed by dehumanizing propaganda. That mention of propaganda is important because even as David Livingstone Smith asks us to accept our own vulnerability to dehumanize others, we also have to recognize the invitation to do so often comes from outside. I see dehumanization as a psychological response to political forces. It doesn't just arise unbidden from the human mind. Dehumanization happens when people in positions of authority scare us into believing that other groups of people are really subhuman creatures. They're counterfeit human beings. The propaganda produced by those people exploits psychological vulnerabilities and biases that we all have. So on the self-knowledge angle, we need to be able to track our responses. And to do that, we need to know about our own minds. But we also have to look outward because dehumanization is the product of some agenda of someone or someones that want us to do awful things to other people. Other acts of resistance include study the history of dehumanization, support a free press, take political action, and remain vigilant. Know the warning signs. It often creeps up on us, you see. And it's often inexplicit. So often a political figure will never use words like uh, animal in relation to, to others and yet express themselves in such a way that the idea that the others are less than human is evoked in the minds of the listeners. When uh, politicians talk about, say, people swarming across a border or infecting the nation or as a plague, these are sufficient to evoke in us images of vermin. When they talk about certain places as breeding grounds for criminality, again, breeding grounds evokes this animalistic notion. So that kind of language is really an important indication that dehumanization is likely on its way, if not already here. And there can never be too much vigilance about this sort of thing. David Livingstone Smith wrote this book with a sense of urgency, in part because of the alarming rise of authoritarian regimes, from Brazil to the United States to the Philippines and beyond. 
He describes how authoritarian regimes very often use dehumanizing rhetoric to advance their agendas. But of equal and even greater concern is climate change. I cannot see any way this is going to be halted. And when that happens, when this hits really hard, we are going to have huge refugee issues all over the world. As nations are flooded, as resources are thin, as infrastructure breaks down, there will be massive movements of people. And that's just a perfect storm for the emergence of very dangerous forms of dehumanization, leading to very horrible forms of mass violence. I I just think we need to be prepared. David Livingstone Smith. His new book is On Inhumanity, Dehumanization and How to Resist It. To learn more about the book and his work, visit davidlivingstonesmith.com. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Family members, friends, and dignitaries gathered in Atlanta last Thursday to honor the life of civil rights legend and 17-term Congress member John Lewis. He was eulogized by former presidents and civil rights leaders who celebrated his commitment to justice. Among those was the Reverend James Lawson. Now 91 years old, Lawson trained John Lewis and many of the movement's leaders in nonviolent tactics. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once described the Reverend Lawson as the leading theorist and strategist of nonviolence in the world. We do not need bipartisan politics if we're going to celebrate the life of John Lewis. We need the Constitution to come alive. We hold these truths to be self-evident. We need the Congress and the presidents to work unfaltering on behalf of every boy and every girl so that every baby born on these shores will have access to the tree of life. That's the only way to honor John Robert Lewis. No other way. Let all of us in this service today, let all the people of the USA determine that we will not be quiet as long as any child dies in the first year of life in the United States. We will not be quiet as long as the largest poverty group in our nation are women and children. We will not be quiet as long as our nation continues to be the most violent culture in the history of humankind. We will not be quiet as long as our economy is shaped not by freedom, but by plantation capitalism that continues to cause domination and control rather than access and liberty and equality for all. The forces of spiritual wickedness are strong in our land because of our history. We have not created them. 
John Lewis did not create them. We inherited them. But it's our task to see those spiritual forces. I've named them racism, sexism, violence, plantation capitalism. Those poisons still dominate far too many of us in many different ways. John's life was a singular journey from birth <laughs> through the campaigns in the South through Congress to get us to see that these forces of wickedness must be resisted. Do not let our own hearts drink any of that poison. Instead, drink the truth of the life force. If we would honor and celebrate John Lewis's life, let us then recommit our souls, our minds, our hearts, our bodies, our strength to the continuing journey to dismantle the wrong in our midst and to allow a space for the new earth and new heaven to emerge. I close with this poem from Langston Hughes, which is a kind of a sign and symbol of what John Lewis represents and what we too can represent in our continuing journey. Langston Hughes, I dream a world where no human, no other human will scorn, where love will bless the earth and peace its paths adorn. I dream a dream where all will know sweet freedom's way, where greed no longer saps the soul, nor avarice blights our day. A world I dream where black and white and yellow and blue and green and red and brown, whatever your race may be, will share the bounties of the earth and every woman and man and boy and girl is free where wretchedness hangs its head and joy like a pearl attends the need of all humankind a church of such a world I dream Celebrate life, dream and labor for an Atlanta and Los Angeles and the United States and a world. That is to celebrate the spirit and the heart and the mind and soul of John Lewis and to walk with him through the galaxies seeking equality, liberty, justice, and the beloved community for all. Thank you.
Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banger Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Muhammad. Please, please stay home, stay safe, and in the words of John Lewis, only get in good trouble. Thank you for listening to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York. Thank you.